This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Sin Abounds, Jesus Abounds More," was recorded at Wellspring Church on November 10, 2019. The text for this message is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The scripture reading for today comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and it reads, "My little children, I am writing you these things to you so that you may not sin." But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So, for those of you who are joining us、uh, for the first time or have not been with us for a while, we are in John's first letter, and in it we looked at. The fact that John emphasizes our fellowship with God as not only crucial but the end goal of the Christian life. We also know that sin can and so much disrupt that fellowship. And even when we're walking in the light, our fellowship can be disrupted. So John makes clear in last week's text,、uh, chapter one, verses five through ten, as well as this week. In、chapter two, verses one through two, and I'm going to take a very Pauline phrase and use it for John because I think it's essentially the same idea that John makes, which is that where sin abounds, not just grace, but Jesus abounds more. I'm going to look at this truth through two means. First is by looking at the power of sin. It's one, and then secondly, the propitiation of Jesus in verses one through two. So the power of sin. And the propitiation of Jesus.、I'm、going to read again, verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, John wants us to have fellowship with God, with His Son, and with others. And there is something that keeps us from this fellowship. We have to ask the question because the word comes up so much in this letter and throughout the whole Bible. The question of what is sin? The problem with words is that the more you use a single word, the meaning becomes lessened over time. It doesn't mean that the word itself is faulty, but it can lead to a dulling of the meaning of that word when we use it. Take, for example, a word like "awesome." Awesome is a word that we use quite often. Today we had awesome donuts. You know, you might have sat there and think, or some of you are sitting on a cushion chair today, and usually the cushion chairs are in the front for those who come early, but they got mixed in. Someone didn't really note our system, and so you're thinking as you're sitting in that chair, "This is awesome. I'm sitting on a a, a mushy chair rather than a hard chair." And that's the problem with the word "awesome" is that we use it so often that the word "awesome." Doesn't really mean awesome anymore, because awesome is supposed to be that which is to leave you in a state of awe, in wonderment, jaw-dropping awesomeness. But again, whether we get a new T-shirt or our six-year-old child scores a, a soccer goal, we think that's awesome, which isn't really so awesome. Sin is the same. We hear the word sin, and it doesn't sound so bad, or it it actually sounds quote judgy to use the word. 
So we don't like using that word because it sounds sort of haughty, proud, and pompous. So sin becomes something that can describe, oh, it was only a white lie. It's not really a sin. It's just a white lie. Maybe our our language has become so deteriorated over time that it doesn't seem so bad. So we tend to think of sins as actions. But what we don't realize is that Jesus makes so clear that it's not just the action that is a sin. It's the heart that produces the action that is sinful. Jesus and the Pharisees seem to wrestle with this definition of sin. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, on a Sunday, or back then, on a Saturday. And when you heal someone, it doesn't seem so sinful. But yet the Pharisees saw that as a sin. And then Jesus condemned the Pharisees as they tithed without their heart. And you might say, well, tithing doesn't seem so bad. How is that a sin? Again, this concept of sin seems so murky to us that when we hear the word, we just don't understand it fully and we just pass it by and it's essentially meaningless. Sin literally means, literally from the Greek, means missing the mark. And think of a, um, a bow and arrow and a target. When you shoot that bow and arrow and you let it go, it veers so far off. It's not as though you don't hit the bullseye. You just don't even hit the target. And that's how they use the word, that word, hamartion, sin, in the Greek culture, is that that's what it was used for. You completely missed it. Sin in the Bible means a displacement of God in your life or a replacement of yourself as God in your life. It's really essentially those two nuances, meaning that you're so off the target that you no longer see God as God, you see yourself as God. And therefore, you determine what is right and wrong for yourself rather than an absolute, majestic, perfect God as the determiner of what is right and wrong. So sin is the heart that expresses that desire to determine for yourself what is right and wrong and no longer a yielding to the God of the universe as the determiner of what is right and wrong. That's really the core of sin. For example, if you get into a conflict with a loved one, you yell at him or her and you say hurtful words, at that moment, you're acting as though you do not believe in God. In that moment, you're essentially a practical atheist. Every time you sin, you're a practical atheist. Now, foundationally, you're not an atheist. You still believe in God. But functionally, in the moment, you're acting as though God is not there and you're the God of the universe. And so imagine your spouse telling you as you're screaming at her, do you even believe in God? Listen to yourself. Maybe you've had that type of conflict. How would you respond to that type of statement in the middle of an argument? Most likely, you might continue yelling. Because in the moment in sin, you are acting as though you're God and everybody around you is your creation. And you have the right to do whatever you want in any moment. In that way, truly, we are a functional atheist. So that idea of sin, we have to keep that in the back of our mind because 
when John speaks of sin, he's going to lay this out constantly, and we have to remember it. You can see why John says in verse 1, if the goal of the Christian life is to be in unbroken, intimate relationship, in other words, the word that he uses to define that is fellowship. So if fellowship is unbroken, intimate relationship with the God of the universe, and sin is the practical outworking of saying that you do not believe in God at all, then you could see how fellowship with God and sin are completely contradictory. You can't say, I'm in fellowship with God, but I love sinning. Or I am sinning regularly, and I don't care about this fellowship. In this way, we know a few things about sin. Sin is corrosive, cancerous. The more you give in to your own heart, and slowly eat God out of the picture, your heart hardens. And you begin to say, I don't need God. And so the cancerous nature of sin is that it reproduces itself. The more you harden your heart against God, your heart becomes so hard that God's word becomes lessened. When you come in contact with other believers who are concerned about you and saying, you know, I'm, I'm really worried. You, you've been really distant, not just from me, but from the Lord. And, and if your heart is, well, I don't care, or how dare you say that to me, that's the cancer of sin slowly reproducing itself. And your heart grows harder and harder and drier and drier, and God's word becomes lessened. And so it makes sense because if by definition sin is defining yourself as the God of your life, deciding that God has no place in it, then the more you do that, the lesser God becomes a part of your life. And so every success, every good happening, you start attributing to your own hard work. I've done this all myself. Who needs God anyway? And everything is so good for me when I don't have God. That's sort of the, the notion of how things happen over time. But of course, here's the problem with that. It lasts only for a few moments. Maybe a, maybe a month, maybe a year, maybe 10 years. But eventually, as we have found, eventually you all go to the mortuary. Eventually you all go into the ground. There will come a day, whether you realize it or not, that you will face the reality that you're not actually the God of your life. So the question is, are you going to face that today? Or one day when people are veering over a coffin over you? Because you will face it. And so everything will come crashing down, even if it is on your own deathbed. There will be the sudden terrifying realization that, you know, being your own God, while it seemed to be so great for a moment, it lasted only a moment. And in the end, it cannot save you. It never saves you. Russian author and poet Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was imprisoned in the Soviet gulags during, uh, following World War II. And what he saw in those gulags as people were being imprisoned is that there were as many, quote, good people as there were bad people who were committing the atrocities. He wrote then about the false idea that we should somehow separate good people from bad people, which we all do. In our minds, we think, okay, in this world, there is good people and bad people. 
And I really appreciate what he says. He says this, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Ah, that's so true. Whether you want to believe it or not. Some of the greatest sinners in our world are the most articulate, the most highly educated, well put together, smartest, talented people in our world. In fact, you can make the case that those are the most dangerous people of all. Because they have the wherewithal, the means, the education, the smarts, but they also have the, the terrifying heart. And behind it still looks a smiling, seemingly good-natured person. I've been reading sort of, I want to get you the opposite of <laughs> Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I've been reading a, a biography on Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales. He's a, it's an, actually an autobiography, founder of Big Idea Productions. Um, he had a dream. You know what his dream was? It was to create a, a Christian Disney that would be on par with eventually one of the top entertainment companies in the world. Very much like a Disney on that level. Amusement parks, you know, all sorts of movies, and just that was his dream to create an alternative from a Christian context that would be excellently produced. Sounds like a really noble, godly dream, and it was for a while. But here's the problem, and I do believe many of us Christians have this problem, is that we like doing things for God. Because we think that it really is for Him. But surely and slowly, we fool ourselves into thinking it is for God until it's too late, and we begin to realize it was actually always for myself. So after being so successful, he actually lost Bob and Larry, meaning the company that Phil Vischer created ended up going bankrupt due to his own inability to see his own heart. That the good things that he did for God over time quickly became sinful things. And this is to what he writes. He says, finally, and I'm very serious when I say this, beware of your dreams, for dreams make dangerous friends. We all have them, longings for a better life, a healthy child, a happy marriage, rewarding work, but dreams are, I have come to believe, misplaced longings, false lovers. Why? Because God is enough, just God. And he isn't enough because he can make our dreams come true. No, you've got him confused with Santa or Merlin or Oprah. The God who created the universe is enough for us, even without our dreams, without the better life, the healthy child, the happy marriage, the rewarding work. And this book was very interesting. This spoke, he lost everything, actually, and is now starting in me. But he had that dream, and that dream slowly came to be his dream, without God. And I do think that happens so often. I've heard that many times, actually, even from church members, saying, God has told me to take on this job. And when you listen to what, how God has told him to take on the job, well, it pays better, has a, has a higher position. Life will be, instead of commuting long hours, they get to actually not commute as much. Sounds reasonable and good. 
There's actually, when it comes to dreams, there's always good reasons for them. Well, if I make more money, then we're stuck in this really small house and I can, we can finally have more space for everybody in the family. And when that happens, and I don't commute as much and I'll have more time with my family. If we move to this location and it just, I know it's further and you know, church community, but we're going to be better as a family. I have never yet once found that to be true. See, the dream is based on our control of how God wants to bless us. And when we go through that, you see all the troubles that come, the trials, the burdens. And then suddenly, slowly, if you're open to the Lord and willing to listen to him, suddenly you begin to realize, you know what? It was always my dream to begin with. I just wanted it. I, I wanted it so much that I wanted to gift wrap it with the, the, the God gift wrap. You know, the present is mine, but God put the God gift wrap on it because once the gift wrap, God gift wrap comes, then it seems like it's God blessed. That's called sin. See, that's the type of sin that is what Jerry Bridges defines as respectable sins. It's the sins of me and you. Hey, you don't do drugs. You don't murder people. But those respectable sins, until we agree with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and I think actually John, I know actually, that it's there's no good and evil. There's no, okay, only good people do good things and evil people do evil things. And I happen to be in the good category because I don't sin those sins over there. No, when you see what happens and you trace out the lineage of that type of heart that does, quote, good sins, it has so often devastating effect to generations because you're raising a child with that type of framework. I don't need God. Do not be surprised if your morality, if all you're here on Sundays is to try to get your child to have be well-educated, to have good moral base. And it might last for a moment, but when they have children, it starts snowballing out of the way uh, and just really becomes destructive. Now, if we were only stopping here, it would be hopeless. This sounds bleak. But we know this to be true. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 6. John writes about it in verse 2. Where sin abounds, Jesus abounds more. Writes in verses 1 and 2, John says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our, ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So first we know that John does not want anyone to sin. Please do not mistake him. Because that's what verse 1's point is. He's trying to say, I don't want you to sin. But in the second part of verse 1, John lets us know if anyone does sin. So he assumes he doesn't want you to sin, but he assumes we all will. And I think rightly so. So then... If it is, it, it is possible then to fight against sin, to battle against it, to realize that every day of every moment of our lives, we are in a battle against sin. There is still sin. And the danger of a passage like this is you can go to two extremes. 
On the first hand, uh, first extreme, we believe by our own efforts we can defeat the power of sin. And so there's this formula that you have. Well, I won't sin if I do 10 early morning prayers, two days of fasting, one mission trip, two times of reading the Bible whole through, and then I'm not going to sin. That's no different than Roman Catholic theology, the whole concept of the rosary. If it were, John's not stating that. He's not saying, and I do think Protestants can very much be practical Roman Catholics by saying that we do certain things to defeat ultimately the power of sin or to be able to save ourselves. There is the other extreme though. So that's one extreme, doing all these things to conquer sin forever and ever. The second is, I don't need to fight at all then because I have an advocate. So we become passive in our faith. We don't really believe that God calls us to obedience or to holiness because Jesus is taking care of it all. And so one, on the one hand, is passive and the other is overactive. Those are two extremes. And the question then is, how do you resolve that tension? Because I think that's what we're all waiting for is, okay, you've laid it out. How do you resolve that tension? The Bible's answer is, you don't resolve it. I know that's never, it's not satisfying to you as an answer probably, but that's the point. You don't resolve it. There is a place to recognize that John doesn't tell us in this passage that we're to figure out that exact perfect point of actively fighting sin and trusting in Jesus. It's not like that graph where X and Y, where it finally hits that point and you say, I want to get to that point. That's not how it works. You do both regularly. All the time. I could have listed so many Bible verses that lay out both sides. So I'm going to list only two on each side. When you fight against sin and for faith, we see it in the Bible. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Clearly a, a battling, racing Fighting against sin verse. Now here's a literal fighting against sin verse in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 to 27. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul saying, as much as I believe in grace, I actually believe that I have to press forward, fight, box, battle, because if I don't, then I might be disqualified. Now, if I were to just leave it there, you'd say, wow, that just seems like it's all about your efforts. Doing as much as you can to fight against sin, and that's how you get it. But then, you have other verses that talk about the fact that no amount of effort you have will save you. So therefore, you have to trust Him. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purposes, no purpose. So righteousness, personal holiness, if it were through my efforts, through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Those are two verses that are pretty clear about saying that it's not your effort that saves you. So we know this, is that in the fight of faith, 
sanctification, following me being saved, I'm called to holiness. I don't just sit back and say, well, I'm saved, so therefore I don't have to do anything. Out of the overflow of my heart and being delightful and delighted of what God has done, I want to obey him and I seek to do it. I seek to be holy. But on the other hand, I know that I can never be perfectly holy and I always go back and trust the finished work of Christ and what he has done. You see, there is no room for us to say, ah, it doesn't matter whether I obey God or not. Jesus died for me and I'm covered. That person is in danger of revealing that they are actually have no fellowship with God. So if you think that way, the big question is, are you a Christian? Because Christians don't think that way. But likewise, the person who says, God has to save me. I've been such a good person who's gone to church all my life and I've been faithful to him. So he must be happy with me. No, God's not happy with you because you go to church or because you're trying to raise a Christian family, or you only listen to K-Love every day. That person alone, apart from the work of Christ, is in as much eternal danger as the greatest sinner who doesn't know Christ. Both. It's an equal and opposite danger that they both face, these two extremes. We obey Christ and his commands because we love him. And if slash when we sin, we have Jesus, who John says in chapter 1, verse 9, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the next three words are so critical to understand. How is this possible? There are three words that show us how the cleansing of unrighteousness of our sin is even possible at all. The first, Jesus is our advocate. John says we have an advocate with the Father. In other words, Jesus is always there proclaiming the ground, the foundation upon which you and I can come to him despite our rebellion against him, despite our sin. In fact, it's the only way you can come to the Father. Here's the thing about the word sin. Whenever sin is mentioned in the New Testament, you know who else is mentioned almost right alongside sin? Jesus. It's constant. It's actually pretty remarkable. You can't help but see that the New Testament writers wanted to tell you and to reinforce into each one of us because they knew we would be so focused on what we've done wrong that we'd either feel condemned, hardened, apathetic, and so just to prevent that, they always bring in Jesus in the midst of sin because they want us to know he is our advocate for every sin all the time, eternally. Now, here's the thing about the word advocate is we have this idea that advocate means lawyer, um, someone who represents you. And we think of it in a legal context and it has elements to that, but there's a a limit to that metaphor because the advocate lawyer goes before a judge and if you've ever been in court the judge is supposed to be impartial but you're trying to convince the judge of your case and if the judge is sort of mean and this is the problem with way, the way we think of God is that Jesus is sort of nice and kind and God the Father is on this 
He's in the do- he's on the judge's bench, and he is looking down at you with sternness and gravity, and he's just angry. And Jesus is your lawyer, and he, he's like, you know, Sam, he's not that bad. I died for him. And somehow Jesus has to convince that angry judge that I'm actually innocent based on what Christ has done. That is a wrong view of the way we think of this picture of Jesus' advocate. God is not there angry. He's actually wanting and willing to forgive you. When he sees his son covering you with his blood, he doesn't look at you and say, you're unworthy. I hate you. You've done evil things. Instead, he says, you're covered. And I want to forgive you. Our Father is a God of love. Judgment, justice, yes, absolutely. But he is a God of powerful love. The Father is willing to forgive you on the basis of his Son's atoning work. And that is ongoing, ever-present, and eternal. And it is Jesus' prayer on your behalf that you are welcomed with the Father Enjoy the prodigal son story tells gives us the best picture of the father of waiting of rejoicing of when you come home and it is his holy spirit according to Romans 8 through Jesus work that takes every prayer every confession and sometimes our prayers after we've sinned don't they seem so feeble so we it seems as though how could you forgive me we, we feel as though we need to take a pile of rocks, put it into a big bag, and carry it around with us for 10 miles in order for us to be forgiven for what we've done. But Jesus is our ever-present eternal advocate. So you never have to think, my words are feeble, I don't have the right words to say. No, God is not looking for you to have the right words to say before him. If that were the case, every word would be feeble. There's no word that ever covers it. It's Jesus who is embracing, covering before the, the throne and saying, on the basis of my blood, this child, this son, this daughter, is, I know you have forgiven them. And the father saying, I want to. I'm ready. I love this person. This is also why you must not believe the lies of Satan. Satan is... I think the older I get, the more I just see how much I hate him. I mean, I think I can honestly say I do hate him. He is infernal. He is evil. He is destructive. He will do and take advantage of every single situation he can. He is a liar. He is an accuser. He's always saying you're not worthy. You aren't special. You aren't good enough. You fail miserably. God is angry with you. He doesn't want you to come into his presence because you so regularly mess up. You didn't read your Bible today. You didn't go to church. You didn't pray long enough. You only prayed one minute. I saw your 10-second prayer. You think God really is going to love you with that? I saw how you yelled at your child today. There's no way that you could be someone who worships God. Don't go to church. You think you can come into God's presence and sing a song? He won't accept you. Satan tries to get us to always think it's about our work. Either the lack of it or the amount of it. 
is how God views us. Do you see how infernal and evil that is? First of all, it says in some way that God somehow needs our work, our dream. Does he need you to get to a certain career path in order to provide for your family? And that's only then are you really loved by God. No, my friends, that's, that's me. That's my pride. That's my efforts. And Jesus, the advocate, destroys that idea forever and ever. Second, sort of ties in very closely to Jesus as our advocate, as Jesus is our righteousness. The Hebrews writer explains well, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mean, I find this to be remarkable. And can you imagine it? Jesus was with his disciples 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years. I non-stop, mostly, outside of him going and sending them off to on errands or uh, praying alone in the morning. He's always together. I've been on mission trips with teams where we're together 24-7 for two weeks. You know, about the second week or the third week, you just want to go home. You just want to say, I love you guys. I, I just really want to, I want a break from you too. Two to three weeks. Maybe some of you have done a month, two months. This is with your own family. Imagine Jesus. The problem with Jesus is that he knew every thought of those men. Not just their actions, he knew their thoughts. I guarantee you, you say, I would love to know people's thoughts. No, you don't. It would make you miserable. It, surely it would make you sin. Because if you knew someone was angry at you and they were putting on a smiling face, that would get you angry, get you frustrated. Well, Jesus knew that. So look again at Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And again, this goes back to, well, we think, well, Jesus, yeah, he was perfect, so therefore it must have been easy to avoid sin. He was tempted. It is harder to not yield to temptation than to yield to it. I think you all can agree to that. It's so much easier to sin than it is not to sin. And Jesus, who was in this constant context where these men who were surrounding him were arguing, who is the greatest? Can you imagine Jesus? I just find that comical as they're arguing who is the greatest with Jesus, the Lord of the universe, right next to them. And he knows their thoughts. They have their own agenda. They end up abandoning him in the end. Not one sinful thought, not one sinful moment. There was never a point where, even though his flesh was tempted because Satan knew, hey, if you just do this, you don't have to go to the cross. These people, they're not worth dying for. Why don't you just remain God? Just... Just avoid it all. It's so hard. But not a moment did he think he was going to go his own way. Not do the Father's will. He knew exhaustion, physical illness, hunger and thirst. All the things that tempt us to sin, he was tempted to sin. But he was perfectly righteous. He never sinned. Perfect righteous life. You know why he had to do that? So that he would be our righteousness. 
You see, that is why we never, ever must try to think somehow the good works that I do make us righteous. Before God, it just makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, the logic of it is just absolutely full foolishness. Jesus had to live that perfect life, and he did, so that when he is our advocate and our righteousness, then when the Father looks at us as a holy God, he looks at you as a holy person. That's why the New Testament always calls the Christian not a sinner. You cannot find one instance in the New Testament where a Christian is called a sinner. They're always called hagion, holy ones, saints. Because in Christ, they've been made righteous perfectly through his righteousness. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. So God never overlooks our sin. Do not mistake the idea of Jesus as our righteousness as though God is overlooking our sin. He doesn't, quote, just forgive us. He forgives us and cleanses us and welcomes us and adopts us on the basis of Christ's righteousness that is credited to us. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. As the result of Jesus Christ and his standing in the presence of God on my behalf, I say this and I say it with trembling and yet I say it with confidence. God would be unjust if he did not forgive my sin. Christ has died for me. It is righteous and just for God to forgive the sins of all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Could you believe that? God is unjust if he does not forgive your sins. This is why we sing, we declare, we proclaim, we cling to Christ Jesus as our righteousness over and over again. And when Satan comes and he says, you're not righteous, you don't pray enough, you don't do this, you don't do that, we go back to say, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And God forgives us on that basis. The third word that John brings up is propitiation. It's a big word. It's the idea of turning wrath. So someone deserves wrath, judgment here, and suddenly it's averted, it's turned away to over here. That's what the word propitiation means, an aversion of wrath. Going from one direction and suddenly it's a, a quick sudden turn and then moves over to here. It's where Judgment is deserved here, but now somehow this this person who deserves judgment actually should be shown favor now. And so now the, the wrath is averted to this direction. And at that cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's propitiation. Suddenly the wrath that was deserved for us is placed on Christ at the cross you see, if that's true, how can we ever wallow in self-pity? How can we ever say, if you're a Christian, how can you ever say, I'm no good, I'm ugly, I can't amount to anything. I have to achieve this type of status in order to be special. It just means we don't get this. Every believer of Christ 
is special. He gave everything so that you would know that to be true. I tell you that until you grasp this, make it deep into your soul, your life will be a life of striving, trying to be somebody, trying to be someone who's looked upon as you want to fit in certain groups and certain cliques, get to a certain career path. Whether you are married at all or married to a certain type of person, whether your children are behaving or not, and that's the worst thing. We don't want to look like bad parents. So, Johnny, make sure that you behave today because I'm going to look like a bad mom. I mean, everything is so much determined by how we deem our life to be based on what we look like. But we need to begin with this starting place that, oh, I'm a vile sinner. Charles Wesley in the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, has this one phrase, his blood can make the foulest clean. Satan tries hard to keep that truth from us. He tries to lie about our two extremes. He tries to get us to believe that we aren't so bad after all. We're not really sinners. We're not like that tax collector over there who's really the sinner. And so if we should go that way, we don't need blood. We don't need Christ's blood. We don't need his work. We don't need the cross because only the foulest sinners over there need the cross. That's Satan's first lie. The second lie is Satan screams out and accuses us that we are failures, miserable creatures who will never be able to overcome sin. And so when you sin the same sin over and over again, I know some of us deal with this. You know, and I used to wrestle with that question. I keep sinning the same sin over and over again. How do I defeat it? No, the answer is not read the Bible a hundred times. Pray. Come to morning prayer and pray for victory. You could do that. You should do that. Maybe not because you think somehow that's going to break that, but it's, it's in response. But instead, how can I, how can I overcome it? I remember what Christ has done. That overcomes it. So it deals with past, present, future sin. So if I'm sinning the same sin over and over again, I don't have to think that that sin over there, 10 years from now, that it's the same, is not going to be dealt with. And then as an outflow, an overflow of that reality, now I want to change. Now I want to be transformed. And I start acting in faith, in obedience. But Satan is always there saying, you're, you're messing up again. You see, you can't do it. You can't overcome it. Jesus' blood is our assurance. Jesus' blood is our promise, our anchor, our payment our in, of our infinite debt. John proclaims it has the power to forgive all righteousness. Let me quote another hymn. Martin Luther's great hymn, A, a Mighty Fortress is Our God. There's a, a great line in that regarding Satan. Um, Martin Luther has, it says, one little word shall fell him. One little word. You know, a lot of people think, well, what's that one little word? Is it God, Jesus? You know, the one little word is liar. That's the word you need to say when Satan comes. Liar. You know you can say liar because of what Christ has done. Let me close with this. It's a story from former uh, Moody Bible Church pastor, Owen Lutzer. 
And I think he describes this idea of Jesus' propitiation so well. Imagine a book entitled The Life and Times of Jesus Christ. It contains all the perfections of Christ, the works he did, his holy obedience, his purity, his right motives. A beautiful book indeed. Then imagine another book. The Life and Times of, now insert your name, okay? It contains all of your sins, immorality, broken promises, and betrayal of friends. It will contain sinful thoughts, mixed motives, and acts of disobedience. Finally, imagine Christ taking both books, stripping stripping them off of their covers. Then he takes the contents of his own book and slips it in between the covers of your book. We pick up the book to examine it. The title reads, Life and Times of Sam. We open the book and turn the pages and find no sins listed. All that we see is a long list of perfections, obedience, moral purity, and perfect love. The book is so beautiful that even God adores it. My friends, that's propitiation. That's what Jesus has done. When he, when the Father looks at your book, long list of perfections, obedience, moral purity, perfect love in Christ Jesus, and God adores it. This should cause us to worship Christ, to want to obey him, to want to pray, to want to love enemies, to want to tell others about Jesus, to want to be like the woman at the well and says, I got to tell people. And the book of Acts is just this story of people getting it. And when you get it, then obedience, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, is not a burden, but it is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So obedience is not that burdensome hard word that somehow I got to do this or else God's angry with me. God is adoring you because of his son. And now you need to respond. And so we, we open these chairs, not because you get an email saying, it's your turn to be on the setup crew and you go, oh man, I hate wake up in the morning. Oh, when is this going to end? Or I got to teach. Oh, it's so hard to teach. But I got to do it because if I don't, then God's not going to love me. Well, I hope that's not true. May it be I serve, I give, I love, I worship, I sing, I kneel, I dance. I go, I give, I make food, I do all that I do because my God adores me. Because he loves me. Because my God gave a son. Because now he looks at me as perfect in Christ Jesus. My friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would understand and enjoy it. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come to this table and we stand before you. And, um, we just pray that uh, as we come, that we will come remembering that we are righteous in Christ alone. We have an advocate. Jesus bore our wrath as our propitiator. Wrath deserved for me, averted to, to Christ Jesus on that cross. So that in Jesus we are free forever and ever. And so we want to come before you and to delight in you and come to this table in response 
with such a heart of joy. Whenever Satan comes, O oh Lord, may we be able to say that one little word that should fell him, liar. Because we know the truth. And the word tells us it sets us free. Lead us, O oh Lord. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name.